0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us to listen to a few reflections from the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television, millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations offered today will touch your heart and truly show you that your life is worth living. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this early edition of Sunday School. Uh, we like to call it sometimes the School of Sheen, uh, because we are featuring the recordings from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Bishop Sheen captivated audiences, and you know there was 5 million listeners that tuned in each week to his radio broadcast back in the 1930s and 40s, and then an estimated 30 million people tuned in to his television shows in the 50s and the 60s. So uh, a very popular um, uh, personality on television and radio. And uh, many of you have told me over the years that uh, you remember as children uh, listening to Bishop Sheen or watching him on the television. So anyway, Uh, so we're going to, of course, uh, talk about sin and guilt today. And, um, you know, we're approaching Lent. And, um, you know, many of us are working on our Lenten fasting and obligations and You know, kind of working on our soul. And uh, so uh, I think Sheen's going to talk on those topics of sin and guilt. Uh, Just to remind us that uh, we should feel sorry for our sins. And uh, they do offend God. And uh, we need to make reparation. But uh, I think we need to talk about it. And so Bishop Sheen is going to talk about it. And so the first uh, uh, talk we're going to give is on guilt. And it was from his television series, Life is Worth Living. And so he'll uh, entertain us, but also educate us. And then uh, during the second uh, half of our broadcast, we will give a catechism lesson on the topic of sin. So it's going to be a great one hour together. So I ask you now to sit back and relax and enjoy this reflection on guilt. God love you.
1: I received many inquiries as to why, toward the end of the program, I keep looking like this. And some wanted to know if I was staring at an idiot card. An idiot card is a large card that is sometimes held up on which, if a person forgets his name and address, it's written. No, it's because there's a clock here. And I have to finish at the end of 24 and a half minutes. And so I watch very closely until the second hand gets toward the appointed minute in order that I may conclude. You see, I I don't have notes. Nothing is written out. And there are no idiot cards. And so I have to time myself as I go along. Otherwise, I would be like someone in... My profession was delivering a funeral oration over one of the beloved members of his congregation, waxing long and eloquent. Sexton came out and pulled his robes. said, it's getting late now, getting late. Better stop And he said, oh, he says, I'm talking on a very vital subject, very vital, the resurrection. Sexton said, I know, but we've got to get our man over there in time for it. Well, this telecast is on guilt a little girl had been to church and she heard a sermon on the separation of the sheep and the goats and when her mother put her to bed that night the little child began to cry and she said mommy I'm afraid that I'm a goat and the mother said, "No, you are not." Bishop Sheen's angel told me that you were a little angel. And if you died, you would go straight to heaven. So the little child was very satisfied. And went to sleep. The next night, the mother came in again, and the child was crying, and and she said to her mother, "I am still thinking about the sheep and the goats, mummy." The mummy said, "I told you." You, you're not not—you're uh, not a goat. You're a, a, an angel. And the little child said, All right, Mother, I know, but I'm afraid that maybe you might be a goat. <laughs> so we'll talk about some of those goats. The word guilt today, you know, is not very popular. One isn't supposed to use it because nobody today is guilty. We're just sick. Uh, you have guilt only in an age where there's reason. Did you know that? As long as people think, they believe in conscience, and because they believe in conscience, they will have a sense of guilt. But now, reason is not very popular. If you put your head between your hands to think out something, people ask if you have a headache. And even all of the fruits of our 2,000 years of Christianity today are being bypassed. There's almost a contempt today for philosophy and theology. Why? Well, Simply because it's, it's reasonable. It appeals to the mind. It makes you think. So when you think, you think of a goal or a purpose, and how you may miss that goal or purpose, how you may attain it. And with that comes a sense of peace on the one hand, guilt on the other. But today, we, we have no sense of guilt or reason. Reason is in disrepute. What's taking the place of it? Emotion feeling, sentiment. When you have emotion, you have no guilt. First of all, let me show you how much emotion plays a part in our modern world. Take, for example, advertisements. Do you uh, hardly ever, do you ever see an advertisement in which there is a reason given why you should buy something? As a matter of fact, the more products are alike, the less there is an appeal to reason. Automobiles, detergents, cigarettes, and liquor. Because no reason is given, they will appeal, for example, cigarette advertisements to, uh, well, you smoke a certain brand of cigarette, give you the feeling of being on a horse in the Wild West. <laughs> or alongside of a waterfall. Detergents. Whoa, washing machine ten feet high. <laughs> Automobiles, ballet dancers. Hardly ever do you find find a reason, so much so that 300 men who smoked three different brands of cigarettes were blindfolded. And they were given three of these cigarettes to smoke. Only 2% could tell their own brand. 2% out of 300. And this was because they have never been given a reason, nor was there actually a reasonable distinction between them. Take, for example, the subject of, of news. How much emotionalism creeps into news. We like to hear about people being killed, about wrecks, murders, assaults, rapes. You know, the best news is the breaking of the Ten Commandments. Maybe in a few years it'll be news to keep them, but presently it's news to break them. So that you will hear, for example, an announcement like this 102 people were killed in the greatest air disaster in history. More details about this terrible accident after a word about Dora, the adorable, adorable ointment. <laughs> and. Not only news and not only advertisements, but the appeal to music. I suppose there is nothing that would ever convince a reasonable man as little as singing a song. Suppose a salesman went in to sell a product and began singing. Or suppose the wife came up and started singing to her husband and... Your wife wants a me, cult. Your wife wants a me, cult. Husband would laugh at you. But today, simply because reason amounts to naught, almost all commercials are sung so that the grip, 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 grip on our heads and on our subconsciousness makes us react like animals to a trainer. Now, I'm not passing on the rightness or wrongness of these things. I'm merely speaking about the mood of our times. That's all. Simply because guilt now has passed away with reason, what follows. Guilt has gone down, real guilt, into the subconscious mind. not faced. it's hidden so what are we are faced with up here we are faced up here with manifestations of guilt that are never recognized as such so let me tell you something that is happening to the modern mind in terms of a tube of toothpaste now I will I will not describe the tube the tube of toothpaste or whether it's the brand that gives you thirty two percent fewer cavities or forty eight fewer cavities, <laughs> but a toothpaste has a normal fixture at the top where under pressure the paste will come out, so too the human mind when it's under the pressure of guilt has a normal outlet, namely admitting it and seeking pardon. That's like taking the cap off the toothpaste. But now suppose you deny this normal outlet and you keep the cap on and then you begin to use pressure on this tube, what happens? You don't know where in heaven's name the toothpaste is going to come out. So, now, with the with guilt submerged in the subconscious mind, and we get under pressures because of guilt, we don't know where it's going to come out. One way it may come out is in neuroses. I think one of the classical examples of neuroses was given to us by Shakespeare. Incidentally, in his great tragedy, Macbeth, you have a perfect example of neuroses in Lady Macbeth and psychoses in Macbeth himself. When did Shakespeare die? Now, 1616. You know, when I was in college, I had to learn the dates of all these English authors, I still remember them. Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616, I think. Look it up to see. Well, Shakespeare in Macbeth, you know, over 400 years ago, So the effect of repressed guilt. So Lady, Lady Macbeth, who has a neurosis of washing her hands, and the maid servant says she washes her hands, every quarter of an hour. She sees blood on her hands. Why? Because she's murdered the King Duncan. There's no blood there. She sees spots. And she asks, if all the waters of the seven seas are not enough to wash this blood incarnate there should have been in Lady Macbeth a very conscious washing away of guilt. Admitting it and seeking pardon. There was none. Cap was kept on. The tube. How did it come out? In washing her hands instead of washing her soul. That's one of the extraordinary manifestations of hidden guilt, because we put it down in a kind of an emotional area. Another manifestation of it is dreams, now not all dreams, but the greatest Psychiatrist who ever taught about dreams was Carl Jung. Carl Jung said that in his psychiatric experience, he examined about twenty-five thousand dreams, and his theory is very interesting. His theory is that a dream is very often a revelation of our spiritual state our spiritual state in other words our conscious mind is making compensation rather the unconscious mind in the dream is making compensation for what we consciously repressed and denied take for example the woman who had a dream about a tree. She was looking out of her window, and uh, she saw suddenly worms coming and attacking the tree, and the leaves began to wither. The trunk rotted, and it all fell. And Young told her, well, this is nothing but the experience of your own life. It was the way that she was living. And this was symbolically a representation of her true spiritual and moral state. Now another manifestation also is looking for a scapegoat. This is very common. In other words, someone to blame. And today, it's it's a great indoor sport to blame religion. churches, ministers, priests, and rabbis, and so forth, are not adequately caring for the needs of people, which indeed could be true in some instances. But there's a search for someone else to blame, and it will almost always be found that people who are discontent on the inside will always begin to blame somebody or something on the outside. So we say, oh yes, He grew up, there were no playgrounds around around where he lived. That's why he's a thief today. Or he was raised on grade B milk. (laughs) There weren't any dance halls. Scapegoats, never the self. Oh no, that's hidden because we live now in an irrational emotional era. Now I could go on enumerating many more escapes through the tube under the pressure of the subconscious mind. Anyone who is skilled in a knowledge of human nature is not led very much astray by these escapes. Let me give you one or two experiences that I had. Not very long ago, a young woman wrote to me, a college student. She was a sophomore in college. She said, I've given up my faith. I no longer believe in God. And I am now an atheist and so forth. Well, it was curious, first of all, that she should have written to me. She lived in another city. I wrote to her and asked her to call on me. She was not a particularly intelligent young woman. And I said, How did you happen to lose your faith? In other words, I was asking her, What is the scapegoat? What's the excuse? She said, the, uh, My studies in comparative religion. I followed a class and I found out all religions are alike. Well, sure, all the, uh, all the paintings in the gallery have the same color, but that doesn't mean that they were painted by the same artist. But at any rate, that was the reason she gave. I knew, of course, that was not the real reason. But I played along with it for a minute. And she was in my library. And I said, now, directly in back of you, is a section of books on comparative religion. I have about 400 different titles on that subject. Now, you pick out any one of those books that you know, and we will discuss it. I glanced them over, but she didn't know any of them, which didn't a bit surprise me. I said, "Um, my good girl, come in to confession. She said, how can I go to confession? I don't even believe in God. I said, listen, you're not having any difficulty with the creed. You have difficulties with the commandments. I said, why don't you face up to it? You've been immoral. In order to escape a sense of guilt, you wrote to me about being an atheist. Isn't that right? She said, yes, that's right. Well, she went to confession, she was all right. I think as I have said before, we do not pay very much attention to what people say. But we pay attention to why they say it. Why? Now another case. A woman told me about a brother of hers who had not worked for three years. His weight had gone down to about a hundred pounds. He had been under psychiatric treatment. Almost uh, a year. And was no better. Would I see him? The poor fellow came to see me. He was rather pitiable in his condition. And I asked him to tell me about himself. Just talk for a half hour. And he talked generally for about a half hour. He said he didn't know the reason why he was this way. And suddenly I turned on him and I said, how much did you steal? He said, I didn't steal anything. I said, you did. How much? He said, I didn't steal anything. You're calling me a thief. I said, yes, you are a thief. How much did you steal? He said, $3,000. He said, how did you know? Well, I said you were telling me about, I asked you all the queer things you do did, namely where the toothpaste came out. And I noticed that, among other things, he said uh, that whenever he would uh, put money in the collection box in church, he would always wipe it off first. So I suspected that. He had dirty money, and that's why I asked the question. I could have been wrong, but I just happened to get it right. And after that, he cleared up. He went to work and began, admitted to the employer that he had stolen the money, and the employer took him back. And he gave back part of his salary, and now he's perfectly normal and healthy. So that today people are not really free from guilt it's just down in another part of their being and this as a matter of fact has another another effect it is often said that today people are irreligious well In a certain sense, maybe they are. But that is not altogether true. Religion has moved out of the conscious, rational, church-going, organizational religion down into the subconsciousness. That's where religion is. That's where the dramatists work on it. And that's where religion will have to begin to work on it. In other words, these people were suffering from these submerged feelings of guilt. They have misery. Yes, misery. They do not call it guilt. That is not important. Fact is, they're frustrated, they're distressed, they're in agony, they're pressed. And they often fall into, into despair. You know the answer? There are two things in this world that never, never should be separated. Misery and mercy. you have misery without mercy, you've got despair. If you've got mercy without misery, you have presumption. Our modern despair is not so bad after all. It can be the condition of a real resurrection, real happiness, and a real peace. Why, as a matter of fact, if we had never sinned, if we were never guilty, would we never could call our Lord Savior. Sin isn't the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is denying that we are sinners. In order that I may not feel guilty of ingratitude, thank you for listening, and bye now, and God love you.
0: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll free at 1 866 357 4336, or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics, such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning to attend Sunday School together. I hope you enjoyed that first reflection on guilt. And, (laughs) you know, I I will say, and this is true, this is so true, uh, Bishop Sheen was one of the first preachers to make me feel guilty for my sin. You know, I think many of us, we have our, I want to say, our habitual sins, the ones we seem to fall into uh, very often, it seems. And, you know, but we don't really have that great sorrow for our sins. Because if we did, we'd stop doing them, you know, if we were truly sorry. And so uh, somehow Bishop Sheen got uh, under my skin or got into my head, uh, however you want to say it, but he started to make me ponder to say, yeah, my sin did have an effect on people. It did wound the heart of Christ. It did affect people. So there is an effect for our sin. It's like um, throwing a stone in a pond. There's a ripple effect. But he somehow stirred in my soul this sorrow uh, that I started to feel sorry for my sins. And Uh, Maybe you're feeling that this morning after listening to that uh, reflection on guilt. There's something stirring in your soul. And so uh, one of the best remedies, of course, is confession. Uh, Just to, again, uh, I think we don't want to psychoanalyze our sin. We just want to be forgiven. I don't want you to tell me about it. I just want to be forgiven. And I think we all feel that deep in our heart of hearts. We want to be forgiven. So, Anyway, uh, so I'm not uh, trying to, of course, wreck your day or, you know, disturb your morning. But you know how they say, "I've come to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable." You know, or so. I think it's one of those sayings that are, is out there a lot. I've come to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Uh, but again, we need to have our hearts stirred uh, to bring about this conversion uh, for us to turn away from sin. And uh, that is, uh, again, our mission in life is to turn to Jesus. So anyway, so let's uh, get back to some more lessons. And uh, I think you want to hear Bishop Sheen more than when you want to hear me. But uh, I am not the greatest uh, catechist uh, going, but uh, Sheen is. So uh, this lesson is lesson number 31 in our 50-part series. And it is on the topic of sin. So I ask you to sit back and relax now and enjoy the Venerable Archbishop Sheen and his catechism lesson on the topic of sin.
2: Peace be to you. The three previous sacraments discussed were baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. All of them refer to a life above the physical, namely the participation of the divine life. By baptism we are born to it, by confirmation we grow into it and accept the full responsibilities of union with our Lord. By the Eucharist and in the Eucharist our union with him reaches its peak and its ecstasy. Now we come to another sacrament which represents a fall away from that divine life namely the sacrament of penance or confession. It is a sacrament which refers to the sins that have been committed after baptism. It is the great sacrament of the mercy of God. And if we may use the word, it is an indication of how very realistic God is. Once we are born to divine life, we should live in it But practically, some fall away, lightly or seriously. God, therefore, in His mercy, has instituted the sacrament by which the sins committed after baptism may be remitted. No human being could ever have thought of this sacrament, for it is something like the resurrection. We rise after we are dead. It is a journey back again to God. It enables us to get rid of infections before they become chronic diseases and epidemics. It is not an unpleasant and necessary sacrament. It is not to be viewed merely as a humiliation. It is the inflowing of God's mercy an opportunity for the increase of the grace of Calvary. It is a medicine for the soul, the healing of our wounds, a homecoming, an undoing of the past, an opportunity to get a fresh start in life. Another bath, a kind of secondary baptism. Sometimes a reconciliation is sweeter than an unbroken friendship. And it certainly is true that if we had never sinned, we never could call Christ Savior. It is the sacrament also which restores us again to the fellowship of the Church, to God's community, to his kahal, to his mystical body. But before we can tell you about that sacrament, we must introduce the word sin. George Bernard Shaw once said that the modern man is too busy to think about his sins. Perhaps Shaw should have said that the modern man keeps nervously busy so he will not think about his sins. Every sinner is an escapist, just as Adam was when he hid from God. The sins we're going to talk about now are not original sin, but actual or personal sins. Remember, we've already spoken about original sin, and we said that it was not personal, We are not personally responsible for original sin. It is a sin of human nature. It is ours simply because we are the descendants of Adam. We are involved in it very much like a citizen is involved in a country whose head has declared war. Oh yes, it left us weak. Gave us even a tendency towards sin. But the tendency or the inclination to sin is not sin. As a result of it, it became possible for us to turn sex into lust, thirst into intemperance and alcoholism, hunger into gluttony, and prudence into avarice. Through that sin, we became almost like those who were given the inheritance of a great estate, but with all of its mortgages too, our nature is spoiled before we received it. That for original sin. Now we come to the sins for which we are personally responsible. They are sometimes called actual sins. Why is sin possible? Because we are free. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. You can tell a man he ought to do something, but in his will he can resist. Sin lies in the abuse of freedom. It has something to do with a wrong or an evil choice. In fact, we never sin without the will. We can take two attitudes toward freedom, both of which are wrong. We can exaggerate human freedom. We can minimize it. We can put too much stress on it and also too little. We can, first of all, exaggerate freedom. We do this when we deny that we are the creatures of God and subject to his law. This was the essence of the temptation of the devil to our first parents. He said, you will be likened to God's. In other words, you will not be creatures, you will be creators. We exaggerate freedom when we say, I love myself, my own will. I am my own law. I determine what is right and wrong. I shall treat my neighbor as an inferior. as a plaything for my pleasure as a means to my profit. I am the end of my own existence. That is the abuse of freedom you find in those who live without God. But on the other hand, sin is possible because we minimize freedom. This comes about when we deny there is any such thing as guilt. We minimize freedom when we say that all guilt is morbidity. It is sickness. It is a psychological complex. Or guilt is just a hangover from religious and family and moral taboos. Those who minimize freedom, of course, always expect to be praised when they are good, but when they do evil, they say, oh, no, it really is not my fault. I was under a compulsion. That is a very handy word. It denies responsibility. Nobody is bad. No one is a juvenile delinquent. They are only sick. You get too fat, you can't help it. You are a compulsive eater. You drink too much, you can't help it. You are a compulsive drinker. You steal, you can't help it. You are a compulsive thief. You see, behind that word and behind all other escapes there is the assumption that I am determined. I am determined by environment. I am determined by my grandparents. I am determined by something inside or outside of myself. Now, this is serious. I mean this denial of guilt. Indeed, there are some manifestations of guilt that are morbid. But even the morbid manifestations of guilt, such as the psychiatrists deal with, do not necessarily prove that there was no real guilt at the base of it. When Lady Macbeth washed her hands every 15 minutes, we have a morbid manifestation of guilt But there was real guilt that prompted that morbidity. Namely, the murder of the king in which he was involved. In the past, it was customary for a man to blame someone outside of himself. Economics, politics, bad environment, poverty, society, grade B milk, insufficient playgrounds. In all instances, guilt was transferred from the individual outside of himself. One of the new excuses is to say that no, a man is not guilty at all. The fault is not in the stars, but wholly in our unconsciousness. We cannot help being the way we are. Some very serious effects follow from this denial of personal guilt. The aim of it, as you see, is to make everybody nice. The worst sinners are nice people. But by denying sin, they make the cure of sin impossible. Sin is very serious. But it is more serious to deny sin. If the blind deny that there is any such thing as vision, how shall they ever see If the deaf deny there is any such thing as hearing, what chance is there of being cured of their deafness? So too with the mere fact that we deny sin, we make the forgiveness of sins impossible. That is why those who very often deny sin become scandal mongers, bearers and hypercritics because they have to project their real guilt outside of themselves to others. And this gives them also a great illusion of goodness. It will be found generally true that the increase of fault finding is in direct ratio and proportion to the denial of sin. In some persons, sin works like a cancer, undermining and destroying the character for a long time without any visible effects. And when the disease becomes manifest, it has progressed so far that some souls give up hope, which indeed they should not, Then there comes despair. A despair is something that demands the infinite. Animals never despair simply because they do not know the infinite. Seldom will a man openly revolt against the infinite. And if he has revolted and sinned, And still does not accept the fact he tries to minimize the gravity of his sin by excuses, just as Cain did. That is why I say modern man has lost the understanding of the very name of sin. He puts the blame on someone else, on his spouse, his work, his friends, on tensions. And sometimes, by ignoring the real guilt that is there, he may become either a psychotic or a neurotic. It is awful when despair takes possession of souls. Then a sinner does not realize that each present sin is adding to thousands of other sins. Traveling at 70 miles an hour in an automobile is already an excessive speed. But if 20 more miles an hour are at it, the danger mounts. Unrepented sins beget new sins, and the dizzying total brings despair. And the soul will say, I'm too far gone. The drunkard becomes afraid of a sober day because that sober day will make him see his state as he really is. The greater the depression, the more a sinner needs to escape from it through further sins until he cries out with Macbeth and his despair. I had lived a blessed time, for from this instant there's nothing serious in mortality. All it is but toys renown and race is it. And this despair has another effect too. It often turns into fanaticism against religion and morality. Man who has fallen away from the spiritual order will hate it because religion is a reminder of his guilt. Husbands who are unfaithful to their wives will beat their wives in order to justify themselves. Some souls reach a point where, like Nietzsche, they want to increase evil until all distinction between right and wrong are blotted out. Then they can sin with impunity and say with Nietzsche, Evil, be thou my good. Expediency can now replace morality. Cruelty becomes justice. Lust becomes love. Sin multiplies in such a soul until it becomes the permanent state of Satan. Oh, he's not happy. The Seneca said every guilty person is his own hangman. And as Shakespeare said, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Now what are we to do in the face of this sin? Continue to deny it? Is it not much better to try to define it and understand it? Thus far... If we are clear, we have indicated that sin is not a manifestation of animal instincts. It is not an interruption of the subconscious. It is not something which happens because we were loved too little by a grandmother or loved too much by a grandfather. It is an act of freedom by which we throw the whole harmonious nature out of joint. It is not just self-interest because that is good but it is rather the affirmation of self at all costs. Here we are assuming the very elementary concept of sin, so let us begin with some analogies from the physical and biological order. Sin in general is disobedience to the law of God. The laws of God are in the physical universe. Suppose someone builds a skyscraper out of plum. The building will not stand. Because he refused to respect the law of gravitation, because he disregarded it, the law of gravitation, as it were, throws the building down. In the broad sense of the word he sinned against the physical law. Now come to a higher level common sense. Common sense is also a reflection of the divine law. Suppose I take my fist and drive it through a window pane. I am free to do it but when I do it I punish myself. My hand is cut and bleeding. I have violated a law And I see the consequences. Go into the biological order. Why does anything die? It dies because there is the domination of the lower order over the higher order. When do plants die? When the lower order, the chemical order, begins to dominate the plant life. Fire kills a plant. Fire belongs to the lower order. How can an animal die? It can die through the domination of the plant life over the animal life. For example, through poisonous plants. How does the body of man die? By the gradual, very often, the gradual burning away An oxidation of the animal tissues and also by lower forms of life getting inside of man and destroying his life. All right, death then in the natural order is the domination of a lower order over a higher order. When does the soul die? Whenever there is the domination of the lower order over the higher order. Whenever there is the domination of the ego over the community of flesh over the spirit, of time over eternity, of the body over the soul, then there is death, and that death we call sin. That is why Scripture equates death in the biological order and sin in the moral order. The wages of sin is death. Sin, therefore, is a deliberate violation of the law of God. If you buy an electric coffee pot, you will find instructions. Putting it in the form of a commandment, the instructions may read, Put not the plug into the electric current when thy pot is empty. But suppose you say, Why should anybody tell me what to do? He's violating my constitutional rights. When you say that, you forget that the manufacturer of that coffee pot gave you instructions in order that you might get a perfect use out of it. And when God made us, he gave us certain laws, not in order to destroy our freedom, but in order that we might perfect ourselves. And when we violate those laws, we hurt ourselves. We break a relationship. That is why in the parable of the prodigal son, the father said to the prodigal, he was dead. Now he is alive. What then is sin for the Christian? It is the breaking of a personal relationship. For those who are in the state of grace, it is a kind of crucifixion. It is the wounding and the hurting of the one we love. Why, therefore, are we sorry for sins? Not because we have broken a contract not just because we've broken a law, but because we have hurt someone that we love. And it is only when we discover God, and above all is mercy in Christ, that we begin to understand sin fully. In other words, it takes love in order to make us understand sin. That seems strange, but it is true. And regardless of how great the sin is, there is always mercy. To be a sinner is our distress. But to know that we are a sinner is our hope. And the hope is the sacrament of penance.
0: God love. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5. CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning for our version of Sunday School uh, to help you get ready for your activities today. And uh, of course, I invite you to stay tuned for the Lutheran Hour coming up. And of course, after that at 7.30, uh, our good friend Pat Murphy is coming in to, to serenade us with song and to share with us some sacred scripture and so uh, from 7.30 to 9, and then I'm coming back to uh, lead uh, some prayer time of the Holy Rosary and the Chaplet of Mercy, and so uh, please stay tuned, of course, uh, for our Sunday morning lineup. And uh, again, I just uh, want to just say Happy Lent to you all. It's, uh, you know, we are. (laughs) uh, Wednesday's coming up, Ash Wednesday. And of course, Shrove Tuesday, I know uh, I was sharing last week on my program, on the Holy Rosary program, that dilemma that people have about uh, Valentine's Day being on on Wednesday. And, um, you know, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to fast on, good, on uh, Ash Wednesday. And uh, so the answer is, is uh, go out with your beloved on Tuesday <laughs> and do that. So, but how about we just propose a double celebration? Uh, a good feed on Tuesday and then uh, just, you know, uh, just being together on Wednesday. So, I don't know, (laughs) trying to make peace in this world. But anyway, so I'll see you in a little bit and uh, by all means uh, continue to uh, just uh, give God praise and be at peace this morning. So, until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. (music) Thank <music> you.